This will be our final sermon in Luke for a little while. Beginning in next week, beginning next week, the preaching team will begin kind of a mini-series on the one another's uh, together. I'm looking forward to sitting under the preaching of the word and, and hearing some of those sermons. And then following that, we're going to spend uh, the rest of the, the, the time in this summer will be spent working through the Psalms. It's kind of started that five or six years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago now, kind of each summer taking a number of weeks and working through the Psalms. And so the preaching team <clears throat> will begin working through the Psalms like that as well. And then in mid-August, when I come back, we will spend a number of weeks together looking at our priorities as a church and taking one priority per week, preaching an expositional message, which means we take one central text of Scripture um, to help us understand kind of our key priorities that we have as a church family. And then, Lord willing, at the beginning of October, we will be back in Luke. Some of you are like, why are you telling us all this way in advance? And others are like, thank you so much. I know where we're going, right? So you can be patient and kind with one another in that. Before we jump into the text, though, let me just give an update <clears throat> on where we are in our church planting replanting revitalization plans. So as you know, we shared in the member meeting back at the end of April, we as elders have been praying and been working for a number of months now on plans for another church replant or plant. By replant, what we mean is partnering with a church that is perhaps on life support, so to speak, about to die or is really struggling and they essentially kind of hand over the keys and then we partner together and use the facility and partner with the, the flock that is there, the congregation that is there. We provide the leadership and we provide some of the direction and the, the philosophy of ministry and we, we partner together in that community. That, I think, would be our first choice, maybe as elders, at least it would lean that way. We think it would be wonderful rather than just planting a, a brand new church down the street from 12 other churches. Uh, to actually partner with a church that is struggling. We think that that's a beautiful picture of the reviving work of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of unity. It's a beautiful picture of new life. And uh, that's near and dear to our hearts. And so we've been praying that the Lord would open doors for that. We have uh, some potential leads on that right now that we're going to, over the next couple of months even, the rest of the elders will be pursuing with some of our uh, local and regional contacts. We're also looking at possible church plant locations if that doesn't work. Um, one of the ways we, we fr have phrased it and we phrased it when we planted Trinity was we are, we are planning to plant and praying to replant, meaning it's really hard to, to plan to replant because we don't know exactly where that church might be or what all the details of that church will be like. Um, so we're planning to plant, praying to replant, and of course, if the replant doesn't work out, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and plant if, if we believe that the Lord's opening those doors in the right time. Um, you might be wondering, well, what is motivating this? What's behind this? Well, if you've been at CCF for very long, you have probably heard our unofficial sort of mission statement, ethos statement as a church, and that is we believe the kingdom of God is better served by more healthy churches than by a larger, what? CCF. CCF. We believe the kingdom of God is better served by more healthy churches than by a larger CCF. We believe that evangelism 
and discipleship and life together and the one another's happen better in more and more healthy church environments than in CCF getting larger and larger and larger and larger and larger. And so that motivates us and drives us. It's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's, it's the gospel work in lives. But we are also motivated by some space issues. And if this is your first or second week here, welcome. We're delighted that you're here. You might be looking around and thinking, well, I see a few seats here and there and around. And, um, but when our 250 or so college friends are here and not home for the summer, uh, space is really tight. And in fact, in both services, is usually about standing room only every single week. And some of you have... Most, a lot of you, in fact, park in the grass, and some have parked across the street, and you're trying to like find a way in. We haven't had anyone lower anyone through the ceiling yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if some Sundays and was like lowering them down so they can be a part of the worship service together. And so that's also a motivation uh, that drives us. You might be thinking, well, why wait this long? Because things have been full for the last year or so, six months after we planted Trinity in. Uh, November of 21, things were full already. Why did we wait? Well, one of the reasons we waited is because we wanted to make sure that, that Trinity was in a really good place, was supported, was encouraged, had what they needed from us. And in fact, this past week, Pastor Chris from Trinity joined our elders for our elder meeting, and it was, it was so encouraging and so delightful to hear an update from him on what God is doing. You're going to hear more in our September member meeting, but all the ways that God is using and blessing Trinity Church. And in fact, if you're here and you live in the Belmont area and are looking for a faithful local church, we would encourage you just to prayerfully consider Trinity Church uh, as a church home as well. Of course, we'd love to have you here, but Trinity is, is doing a good work and God is blessing. And so now we believe it's a good time for us to begin to think about and plan and make steps towards another church plant or replant. So here are the, the four things over the next couple of months we would ask of you. First, pray that the Lord would direct us to the lead pastor for our church plant. Um, we're beginning to make contact with some of our resources outside of CCF who know of individuals, who know of godly men who are gifted and and have the experience and the ability to, to shepherd the flock who might be a potential lead pastor candidate. And so we would ask you to pray for that. And certainly if you know of men, you have someone in mind, uh, let one of the elders know. Um, I'll be on sabbatical, so go to maybe one of the other guys, um, but let them know about, about that individual. Secondly, pray for the Lord to open a door to replant. We all believe in the sovereignty of God. It's something we herald. If you've been at CCF very long, you know that we love to talk and rejoice in the sovereignty of our good God. And yet we also do not believe it's wrong for us to ask specific things of the Lord. And so we're just prayerfully and humbly asking that the Lord might be pleased to open up a door for us to replant. Again, we have some initial encouraging sort of conversations um, that might be happening, and some of those will be happening over the next couple of months we just pray that the Lord would grant uh, humility to us and humility to those churches that are really struggling and some that are about to close their doors so that we might be able to partner with them for the work of the Lord in the Dayton area. Third, pray for the Lord to direct us to a location if replanting isn't viable. And again, some of you have mentioned, hey, there, there's a need of a good church in this community and there's a need of a good church in that community. Continue to let our elders know. Give us feedback. I had someone after first service share another location 
that uh, he believes would be a great location for a church plant. And so communicate with our leaders, communicate with our elders, let us know, and then pray that the Lord would direct us to a location. And then fourth and finally, pray about your role in the plant or replant. Uh, As we move through the next 18 months or so, we're going to be coming back often and sharing together as a church family status updates and where we are and how plans are kind of coming together. And You're going to be a core part of that plan. As a, if you're a member of this church, you're going to be giving input and helping to make decisions around all those things. And we want you to, as you're doing that, be, be not just thinking about this as a plant in which someone else, someone in front of you or behind you or next to you might go to, but consider if the Lord is perhaps stirring in your heart to be a part of the church plant. Because we're going to we're going to ask and believe that the Lord will lead some of you, even, even though you might be comfortable here at CCF and love it here at CCF, he may potentially lead you to go and to be a part of a new work in an area that desperately needs a faithful local church. So pray in those ways, communicate as you have questions, thoughts, comments <clears throat> to our leadership, to our elders, uh, let us know and uh, we're, we're praying along with you. All right, let's get into God's word this morning. We're picking up here in Luke chapter 22. This is right before Jesus is arrested. And right before he will be executed, but before that happens, Luke narrates for us the events here of chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. If you were listening as Drew read, you noticed that we have Judas, one of Jesus's 12 apostles who sells Jesus out for money. And we have Jesus in this text, arranging dinner and having dinner with his disciples. And we see him at dinner, telling and showing his disciples that he will be betrayed and that he will be killed and that he will rise again. And we have the disciples missing the point completely. Like They, they will argue and wonder about who it is that's going to betray, and they're going to argue about who's the greatest when Jesus has just told them the most important news in all the cosmos. If there's one primary thing then this morning that I think we should see from the text, and there's so many things, I mean, we could, we could spend a mini-series on these verses alone, but if there's one primary thing to see in the text, here's what I would want you to see. I would want you to see that God is working out his purposes even in the face of evil, so that his plans are accomplished. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with this, that God is working out his purposes, even in the face of evil, so that his plans are accomplished. Now, that's the most important thing to see here. But there are some other things to see here. And to see what Luke, I think, wants us to see and what the Holy Spirit, I think, wants us to see, we need to not miss the clues that Luke leaves for us. So Luke embeds different clues in this text to kind of tip us off to what is important in this text. For example, notice the way, to begin with, that Luke sets the stage by telling us that everything that happens in these verses happens around the time of the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now look at verse one. Word of the Lord says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, 
Luke has given us a clue. This is really important. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the time of the Passover. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover are technically separate, but they are closely related. In fact, the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed right after the Feast of Passover. And again, if we connect this back to our main point that God is in charge and God is in control, then we should see here that God's plan is for Jesus to be sacrificed during the Passover since, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus is the Passover sacrifice. Like This is not just coincidence that Jesus talks about giving of his body and that gives them the cup of the new covenant in his blood at the time of the Passover. All of this is highly symbolic, which is what Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 5-7. And yet we also see here, even in these opening verses, that even though it is the design and the plan of our God to to organize and to orient and to plan the, the death and the details around Jesus' death, those who are involved are still responsible. And right from the beginning, we see that the chief priests and the scribes are committed to killing Jesus. Like they have not liked Jesus for a long time now in Luke. And now it reaches a boiling point, and they are committed to putting Jesus to death, whatever they can. But they have a problem, don't they? The end of verse 2. They feared the people because Jesus is wildly popular. And then comes their opening. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Let's just pause here for a minute because this is an interesting thing, Satan entering into Judas. You might remember, you might remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and ever since that point, Satan's agenda has been clear. He will do whatever he can to destroy the plan of God by targeting the people of God. And that's exactly what he does here. Judas, who we know is motivated by greed, allows Satan a foothold in his heart. The fact that Satan enters him doesn't remove his personal responsibility. Jesus is clear about that in verse 22. But it does mean that he has so hardened his heart against Jesus that he is now a willing co-partner in the work of the enemy. He is a sitting duck for the wiles and for the plan of Satan. <clears throat> Tom Schreiner, a author and pastor, writes, Satan can gain control of Judas only because Judas allows it, and yet Judas's giving of himself to evil allows evil to become an even stronger part of his life. Indeed, Judas is now beyond the reach of goodness. He has given himself entirely to the evil. And we might... We, me, we, <laughs> we might wonder, like, what in the world would cause Judas to do this? Like, to give himself over to the work of Satan. Like, we know that he was greedy. But after all, this seems really extreme. 
I mean, think about it. He, he lived with Jesus for three years. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus talk. He, he saw the, the incredible works that Jesus accomplished. He had a front row seat to the identity and the work of the Son of God. Maybe he was disappointed that Jesus was not going to establish a political kingdom right away. Maybe he was disappointed by Jesus' call to serve and suffer when he had hoped that by following Jesus it would mean power and prestige and wealth and health and happiness. Like we don't know why, but at the end of the day, sin is always irrational and self-destructive. We oftentimes can't look back even in our own lives and put our finger on, here's all the reasons I acted the way I did. Here's all the reasons I sinned in the way I did. Because sin is irrational, it's self-destructive. But before we're too hard on Judas, let's remember what easy prey we are for temptation. Just think about the last 48 hours of your life or the last week of your life. Think about the temptation that has come your way or maybe the temptation you've given into. Let's remember that apart from the undeserved mercy of the Lord, we too could just as easily act as Judas did. Now for Judas, the Bible is clear that Judas never believed from the beginning. In fact, in John 6, 64, it says that Jesus knew from the beginning those who wouldn't believe and who would betray him, referring to Judas. So now Satan, who has left Jesus, you remember after Jesus' temptation, left Jesus until an opportune time, this is the first time he arrives back on the scene since the temptation of Jesus. He's entered into Judas, master plan is beginning to come together. But what is Jesus going to do? On this night on which hangs so much of human history, what does Jesus choose to do? It's fascinating that Jesus chooses to spend one final evening with his closest followers. He doesn't go out and preach. He doesn't go on a healing campaign around Jerusalem, but he gathers together with his closest followers for one final meal. One final Passover together. Now, there are lots of things that we could kind of park out on in this text around the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal together. But what I want to do is point out four sets of two. So if you're taking notes, this will guide the rest of our time together. Four sets of two. Two Passovers, two givens, two cups, and two suppers, two Passovers, two givens, two cups, and two suppers. First, let's notice the two Passovers. You might remember in the Old Testament, people of God, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt. They were captive there and were unable to deliver themselves from slavery. And so they cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and God raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses. And God led Moses to Pharaoh to tell him what? Let my people go, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? Let my people go, right? 
And yet Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened before the Lord, said, no, not going to let them go. And so God sent signs to demonstrate the superiority of his power so that all the Egyptians and all the Israelites would see and know that there is only one God, and he is the God of the Israelites. And yet each time God did a sign, which we call the plagues, after each one, Pharaoh would say no. And even occasionally when he at first he would say, okay, yes, make the plague stop, but then and then I'll let them go, he would change his mind. And so God said there's going to be one final plague that will come. And it's the death of the firstborn male. And yet in grace and in love, God provided salvation for those who believed. And the salvation came in the form of obedience as they took a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, and they would slaughter and they would take the blood and they would apply the blood in faith over the doorpost of their home. And later that night when the death angel came through town, the death angel would see the blood placed there by faith in Yahweh and would pass over that home, meaning that those inside the home would pass over from death to life. And in fact, shortly right after Passover is when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. The exodus took place right after Passover. Passover was at the threshold of the exodus. And the imagery was so clear. God was saving his people. He was liberating his people by faith. Those who trusted in him. Those who were obedient. And this would happen through the blood that was sacrificed. And so the people of Israel would gather together regularly and they would, they would take the Passover meal every year together. And as they took the Passover meal, they would remember the historical exodus of their ancestors, how God brought them out of slavery and out of bondage and liberated them even though they could do nothing to help themselves. They could do nothing to set themselves free, but how God had set them free through the blood that was shed. But they also looked ahead as they took the Passover and they remembered the promise after promise after promise made by the Old Testament prophets that one day God would ultimately send a rescuer who would come and who would lead them into ultimate rescue and eternal rest. So the Passover looked back and the Passover looked ahead. So it's no coincidence now that Jesus gathers together with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, this meal which is designed to picture and symbolize and memorialize God rescuing his people from bondage and giving them life through the blood. So when Jesus, gathered with his followers, tells them in verse 17, he takes the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The significance of that would not have been lost on Jesus' closest followers gathered around the table. 
They remembered the first blood that made their, the rescue of their ancestors possible from slavery in Egypt. And now Jesus says, this represents my blood. This is the blood, not of the old covenant, not of the bulls and goats, not of the covenant that was inaugurated with Moses at Sinai through God's work in Passover, but this is the blood of the new covenant, which will be inaugurated through my death on the cross and giving myself and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for all who believe. Everything is happening according to the Father's plan. And so it's here, these disciples gather together with Jesus around the table. When we think of the table, we should not think Leonardo da Vinci, you know, a bunch of Caucasian looking, you know, blonde-haired dudes with blue eyes, all sitting on the same side of the table, which seems like a weird way to socialize anyway. You try that this afternoon over lunch. Like, let's just all sit on the same side of the table. be kind of awkward. We should instead picture a low table, the men reclining on their sides, faces towards the table, feet away from the table, sharing an intimate meal together, one final meal with their master. And it's here that Jesus takes the bread and he gives it to them and after giving thanks, saying, this is my body given for you. He takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood for you. This is the new Passover. That just as the first Passover preceded the Exodus, the second Passover precedes our spiritual Exodus from slavery. So there are two Exoduses but there are also two givens. This might not be quite evident at first, but there are lots of occurrences of the word betray in our text or Jesus being given over to the chief priests as we're gonna see even in, as we follow this on in Luke a little bit later. But at the same time, we see Jesus giving of himself. For example, verse 17, when he had given thanks, he gave the cup to his disciples. Verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. And then he took the cup, and he gives it to his followers. There are two givens here. In fact, the Greek word for betray and to give are closely related. So Jesus is being betrayed. He's being given over. By Judas, he's being given over by the chief priests and the scribes. He's being given over by the Jews and even Pilate and the other Gentiles. But at the very same time, he is giving of himself. He is offering himself. His life is not just being ripped out of his hands. He's not going to the cross against his will, but he's offering himself. And that's what we see even around the table. When he takes the bread and he gives it to them and says, this is my body. Like, my body is about to be destroyed for you. I'm going to suffer for you. And he takes the cup and he gives them the cup and he says, this is my blood. I'm going to give up my blood for you. It's a reminder of Jesus' own words in Mark 10, 15, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even as Jesus is being given over to death, he is ultimately giving of himself 
as a ransom for many. Or to put it another way, even as he is forcibly, forcibly being given over, he is ultimately the one who is in control. So when we think about who actually killed Jesus and how Jesus' life was taken from him, there's culpability on behalf of those who actually arrested Jesus and for Judas turning Jesus over and for the crowd who shout crucify and for Pilate and for Herod, for those who nailed Jesus to the cross, but all of it is happening according to the divine plan and the foreknowledge of God. This is a point that Peter and John make clear after they're arrested and warned not to preach and then they return back to to the gathered church. This is what they pray to the Lord when they gather gather again back with the church. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Herod and Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel? Yes, yes. These were the people who were against Jesus, the people who put him to death, but who was ultimately in control? Acts 4, 28, all of those people did whatever the hand of the Lord and the plan of the Lord had predestined to take place. It was ultimately the plan of the Father to offer the Son as a sacrifice for sin. And it was the Son's obedience to the Father to willingly give himself as a ransom for all who believe. So even as Jesus is being betrayed, even as his life is being forcibly taken from him, Jesus is in control. God's plan is being fulfilled. There's one more thing I think it's worth noting in here, and I would not have seen it, but one of our interns, Micah, helpfully pointed it out this week. Consider the role of the chief priest here. So in the Old Testament, the chief priests were the ones who presided over the sacrifices that were offered daily for sin. So animals were killed, blood was shed so that sin could be covered, so that sin could be atoned for in the eyes of a holy God. And the chief priests were the ones who presided over the sacrifices. And by now, now that we get to the first century, to Jesus' day, the chief priests had long ago abdicated their responsibility. They'd long ago kind of forsaken the job they'd had. They'd been corrupted. They'd been bought off by the Romans. They were not being faithful to what God had called them to do. And yet, in a a strange to us twist of of providential irony, of of God-like irony, 
we have in this final act of the chief priests, them unknowingly presiding over the once and for all ultimate sacrifice for sin. They don't even know it. But they are the ones who are in control. They are the ones who arrest Jesus. They're the ones who preside. They're the ones, even when Pontius Pilate is doing his thing, when the crowd's doing their thing, they keep resorting back to the chief priests. And the chief priests are there, even likely they're gathered at the foot of the cross, unknowingly presiding over the once and for all sacrifice of God the Son. There are two Passovers, two givens, now two cups. There are two cups. To see this, we need to go ahead in time just a little bit to some events that will happen just a couple hours after the Lord's Supper here gathered with his followers. Because after the Lord's Supper, Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to pray. And it's there we know that he will be arrested But he gathers there right before he is arrested to pray. And specifically, in verse 42, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And now to our ears, we hear the word cup, like remove this cup from me, and we think that's kind of a strange thing. What in the world is Jesus talking about? But if we begin to understand the Old Testament, we see that throughout the Old Testament, The reference to cup always refers to the cup of God's wrath, his just wrath for sin. So our triune God, because he is fair and holy and just and perfect, is fairly and justly and holy and perfectly wrathful towards sin. He doesn't smile at sin. He doesn't wink at it. But there is righteous and right wrath for sin. And so throughout the Old Testament, The cup was a reference to the wrath of God for sin, the just punishment for sin. So what Jesus is praying in the garden is, Father, if there's another way for you to redeem a people upholding your righteousness and justice apart from me taking the cup of your wrath, drinking this cup of the wrath of the triune God, then let that happen. But if not... Not my will, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus did, in fact, drink the cup of the wrath of God for sin. The sin of all who believe were placed upon him. He went to the cross, dying for sin. Jesus takes the cup of wrath. But there's a different cup that's being talked about in our primary text this morning. When Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the covenant in my blood, the new covenant in my blood, which is for you, that is not the cup of God's wrath. That's the cup of the new covenant. That's the cup of reconciliation with God. That's the cup of righteousness and oneness with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, because he takes the cup of God's wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane, he can offer the cup of righteousness and reconciliation and redemption here at the Last Supper. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what will take place. He knows that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to seek and save the lost. 
He has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows that he will drink the cup of the wrath of the triune God. And therefore, he he freely offers the cup of reconciliation and redemption. And the same thing applies to us today. The cup of wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane would make possible the cup of reconciliation for all who believe. Or in other words, Jesus drinking the cup of wrath 2,000 years ago means that we today can drink the cup of redemption. Every time we take the cup, as we will in just a few moments, we hold that cup. We should not just think about that cup. We should think about the other cup that made this cup possible. Jesus took on our behalf. So we have two Passovers, two givens, two cups, finally two suppers. The first supper is here. Jesus gathered together with his followers. Notice verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the last time that Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine until he comes again, until he comes in all of his glory to inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom to create a new heavens and a new earth where we who are believers will gather together with Jesus around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus, gathering with his disciples, even looking across the table or or next to him perhaps and seeing Judas, whose hand is with him, dipped into the, the, the meal. Jesus sees Judas there. I may even have thought about Psalm 23 When David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, I wonder if that's somehow foreshadowing what is going on here around the Lord's Supper. But either way, Jesus is is saying to them, I'm going to abstain from the fruit of the vine, which is a symbol of celebration. It's a symbol of the work is complete and now we party. And he's saying, "I'm, I'm going to abstain from that from now on until that day When I come in glory, when the kingdom of God is come in all of its fullness, and then we will party. And we look forward to that. That Revelation 19, marriage supper of the Lamb, when Jesus Christ will return. But this means that Jesus is abstaining from the fruit of the vine until this last final supper that we're still waiting on. Until we drink it all together in the consummated kingdom of God. Which means, friends, that Jesus is abstaining from this celebration until you are gathered there. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in him alone for salvation, you will be gathered at that marriage supper of the Lamb. You're going to be there. You're going to be there, you're going to see the king of kings when he breaks his abstention. When he at last, ever since this day, partakes of the fruit of the vine again because salvation at last is now fully accomplished. 
all of the elect of God are now gathered in. His people are safe and at home where there is no more death and sickness and suffering and dying and cancer and fear and anxiety and worry, where all of that is in the past. And we at last, at long last, are with our King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus takes the cup and we will be present when that juice meets his lips for the very next time. And he says, now let's party. Amen. Amen? Which is what we should think about. I think that's maybe what Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. It's a Passover festival that we look back and we celebrate God's liberation from the slavery of our sin. Freeing us through the precious blood of Christ. We look ahead to that glorious day when we will gather at this marriage supper of the Lamb. But we also look around. The Lord's Supper is taken together with followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's taken as local outposts of the kingdom. Churches gather together for worship. It's not celebrated in our individual homes or in seminaries or church camps because it's a, it's a gathering for the church to remember and celebrate. And even as we celebrate, we look around and we remember that we who come from all kinds of different backgrounds and ideologies and educational levels and socioeconomic classes and opinions and thoughts and ideas, we are made one. We are brought into one body as brothers and sisters in Christ through the one door of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we take the Lord's Supper and we look around and we remember, he's a whole lot different than me, she's a whole lot different than me, but you know what? All of that pales in comparison to what unites us together in the gospel. As one scholar writes, the Lord's Supper is not for lone ranger Christians, but for Christians in relationship with other Christians. And so this morning, we are going to receive the Lord's Supper. I've invited some friends to serve with us. If you are here and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are trusting in him by faith for the salvation of your sin. You are welcome to the table. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, our prayer has been that even as we've sung the word and prayed the word, read the word, preached the word, God would be opening your spiritual eyes to see his glory and your need, and you would turn and trust in him this morning. And someone around you, even after service, would love to talk to you about that. Trust me, they would. So if you're here this morning, as we sing this song, before we take these elements together, we'd encourage you just to, to turn by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your King of kings, as your Lord of lords. If you're here this morning and, and you're not prepared to do that, then we would just ask that you let the elements go by, then than to receive them in what the Bible calls an unworthy manner. We wouldn't want that for you. If you're here this morning and you have unforgiveness, you're harboring against someone or discord against another brother or sister in Christ, we'd ask that even as we sing, you would repent of that. You would turn to the Lord. You would seek forgiveness. And then that you would make a, a conscious, real, legitimate decision that I, I'm going to make things right as soon as possible. I want to make things right today or as soon as service is over. Maybe even shoot that person a text as we're singing the song like, hey, we need to talk today just so you put yourself on the hook so you know you're not going to get out of it. 
And then I would encourage you to receive the elements. Someone who's forgiven in the eyes of God. I don't want to bind your conscience to that. There are a lot of details around all those sort of relational things. But this supper is for imperfect people. It's for people who fall down and scrape their knees and and get back up and, and seek to find our identity in Christ. People who, as Pastor Steve was talking about earlier in pastoral prayer, have doubt sometimes and struggle sometimes and fail to believe the truth sometimes. It's a reminder that we are not saved in our own strength. We are saved through the precious work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time now. I pray that you would remind us of the glory of your son, God the son, fully God and fully man, who took on flesh, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, who suffered and died and rose again. We take the bread and we take the cup and we remember him. We also remember that day to come when this meager piece of small bread and the meager swallow of juice will just be a foreshadow, just an appetizer of the banquet, the feast that will be ours in the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, where at last he will break his abstention and he will take the fruit of the vine once again and we will celebrate and party and rejoice. Father, I pray that we would look around and we would remember your great love for us and how you have adopted us into your family, the family of faith, the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do your work now, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name.